What I want to talk about is uh, the, the, the topic of, of hope. My, my message this morning is called A Real God and a Real Hope. And uh, the Christian life is a life based on hope. 1 Peter 1.21, we are through Christ believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Galatians 5.5, we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope. Before the cross, we had no hope. As Ephesians 2.12 puts it, we were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That was our life before Christ. Oh, we had hope. We hoped that money would bring us happiness. We hoped that our maybe finding a spouse would bring us fulfillment. We hoped uh, maybe finding a profitable career would give us um, worth or hope that power and influence would, uh, would maybe bring us some security. We had hope. But when God opened our eyes um, and the truth confronted us, you remember, we saw those hopes for what they really were. They were empty. They were powerless. They are powerless to bring us what we longed for. Even more than that, we discovered that these things were, that we were hoping in were in fact idols, right? Gods which we served and trusted to meet our needs. And, but the, the gospel, we discovered true, real hope. As, as 1 Timothy 1.1 puts it, the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And we discovered that in the gospel. Our affections were redirected. Our, our trust centered on Christ. Suddenly money didn't matter. A, a spouse didn't matter. Careers and power and influence didn't matter because we had Christ. We saw those things as idols standing in the place of the true king. And as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, we turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what happened at our conversion the before and after. Hope is a precious, precious thing. Hebrews 6.19 describes it as an anchor, anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. That is to say, hope grounds us against the the waves and the, the floods and the breakers of the world. When you have hope, real hope, Nothing the, the, the life can throw at you really matters. It's not going to, to uh, sway you because you have hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 describes it as a helmet. The helmet, the, the hope of our salvation. It's the ultimate spiritual protection from the enemy who would otherwise rob of us of our eternal life. Our world's fraught with uncertainty, danger, disaster lurks everywhere. We live in a Sin-cursed world, financial instability, political uncertainty, hurricanes, droughts, fires, you name it. 
Where there is hope, but there is peace and security, right? Confidence. Where there isn't hope, there's fear, there's despair, there's trepidation, there's uncertainty. And even we who are believers, who have discovered true hope and true peace, we can be tempted to fear, can't we? We can be tempted to search for some other hope, something more tangible, something we can grab onto, something we can see. The idols we once renounced, they're waiting in the shadows. They're whispering for us to renew our affections, to embrace them once again. This is why the New Testament repeatedly warns us about idolatry. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Run. John ends 1 John. His last statement he ever says is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You ever wonder why he said that? Because of how how dangerous idols are. Even messing with the person of Christ becomes forming an idol. It's a false God. It's a false Christ. The reason the New Testament gives these warnings is because we have in this innate sinful propensity to find hope in anything but the one true God. But here's the thing about hope. This is important. Hope is directly tied to trust. Hope is tied to trust. The strength of your hope cannot exceed the stature and the strength of the thing that you put your trust in. I mean, you could put your trust in anything, uh, but if it's not worthy of your trust, then it can't produce real hope. It can produce false hope, empty hope, right? Only the true God can produce true hope. Only the real God can produce real hope. And that kind of hope, as Romans 5, 5 says, does not disappoint. Doesn't disappoint. And if there's one passage that makes this principle clear, it's Isaiah chapter 44. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the 44th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah is a a book that centers on hope and it centers on trust. If, if, If I were to boil down the whole point of the... The, the book of Isaiah, it is, who will you trust in? The prophet Isaiah's ministry spanned a period of 58 years. During that time, four kings reigned on the throne of Judah, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All of them, at one point or another, dealt with the same issue. Who will they trust? Who will the nation trust? This was a period of Israel's history that was especially perilous. Assyria had grown to become the most, well, the the new potential superpower, really. It was vying for the, the throne of the ancient world. It was a bloodthirsty nation. It was bent on conquest. Nation after nation was crumbling before its armies. The entire ancient Near Eastern world was scrambling to find some kind of hedge of protection against this new up-and-coming superpower. And Judah's kings were confronted with this reality. Where are they going to place their trust? 
Isaiah kept calling them again and again to trust God, that God could protect Judah if only they would trust him. But the kings, and especially Hezekiah, or Ahaz, were continually tempted to turn to the nations, nations like Egypt, to form military alliances, human military alliances, and, and strength. They're the key. Sounds familiar, right? Isaiah warned them that only God, only God was going to be able to, to protect them from the Assyrians. And so chapter 36 through 39 is, is this important section. It's this pivot point in the, in the book of Isaiah. The first 35 chapters of Isaiah is prophetic discourse. It's poetic. It's, it's prophetic. It's, it's Isaiah basically um, preaching uh, for them to trust Christ, to, to trust God, turn back, trust in him. He will protect you. And then you get to 36 through 39 and suddenly the whole thing shifts and now we're into this narrative. It's this interlude where there's these examples of, of certain things that are happening that, that make a, a pivot point uh, in, in the, the flow of Isaiah and set us up for what's to come in 40 through 66. But in chapter 36, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invades Judah and besieges Jerusalem. It seems that the city is doomed. They're not getting out of this one. The king sends an emissary to the the walls of the city. He calls out to the people who are inside, Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered us his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Whom among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You hear the taunt. But this is the question, the fundamental question of this book. Who will you trust? Well, in this case, Hezekiah pleads with God to deliver Judah, and God responds. And Assyria wakes up the next morning to find 185,000 corpses in their camp. The death angel comes through and slaughters them, and, and, and they retreat decimated, and Judah is spared. A, a clear example of how trusting God um, uh, it, it will, will bring security to the nation. There's a clear historical example Chapter 38 comes and we find that right around this time, Hezekiah falls mortally ill. He's despairing for his life and his desperation. He prays to the Lord to deliver him, to to, to save him, and God grants him another 15 years of life. There's another example of how trusting God will bring that security, that protection. But then something amazing happens. Chapter 39 Envoys from Babylon come. Babylon at this time was just a, an up-and-coming nation. It wasn't a superpower yet. It wasn't the threat that uh, it would be um, a couple centuries later. Right now, it was just this burgeoning nation. And they, Babylon sends them envoys. They had apparently heard that Hezekiah had been ill and had miraculously recovered. They come to congratulate him and perhaps tempted by the prospect of a new alliance with Babylon against, uh, against uh, Assyria, 
Or, or maybe it's just that he's emboldened by his own pride, but Hezekiah opens up the storehouses of Judah and shows him all the wealth and all of the, the military armaments that Judah had. And God's response to this act of pride and lack of faith is this ominous message. Babylon is coming. Babylon is coming. They've seen what you have. You've shown it to them. And one day they're going to come and plunder your riches and take your entire nation away into exile. And and chapter 39 (laughs) ends with that message. You're going into exile. Judah, Judah is destined for exile. Seems like a a good, uh, encouraging way to end. But then chapter 40 comes. And the entire focus of the book shifts. Isaiah turns from the Judah of his day to address the captives who will find themselves exiled in a faraway land in Babylon. He he knows the despondency that they're going to have. He knows the fear that will be facing them. He, he knows the questions they'll be asking and wrestling with. Is this it? Is this it? Is there any hope for us now? Is God finished with us? And even if he's not finished with us, can he do anything about it? Right? Or are we destined to live under the, the tyranny of Babylon and the gods? Are we through? He also knows the temptations they're going to be having. Yes, temptations to, to give up hope, to have fear, but even more than that, temptations to find hope somewhere else. Maybe, maybe Babylon's gods can, can save us. Maybe if we, if we put our trust in them, they can give Judah a future that Yahweh can't. Isaiah 40 through 48 answers those questions. God is not done with Judah. He's not impotent to the gods of the Babylonians and his plans for his people are not thwarted in any way by their sinfulness. He's going to show his sovereignty and his absolute supremacy by doing something new, something impossible. He's going to bring his people back from exile in an event that is so momentous that it can only be compared as with, with the, the, the exodus from Egypt. He's going he's gonna to make a new exodus. That's how incredible this act is, how miraculous this act is going to be. And these chapters are, are, are a monumental work of theology and prophecy, chapters 40 through 48. And, and our passage in chapter 44 is really the zenith of the whole section. It's the pinnacle of it all. It's where everything is going. And it really has one clear message. Don't be afraid. You can trust God. You can find hope in him. That's that's the message of Isaiah Isaiah 44. Remember, hope and trust are linked. You can't hope in something you can't trust. And so the message of this passage is that you can hope in God because he's the only one worthy of your trust and therefore he is your only hope. Why? Well, number one, because God is unlike anything else you can place your trust in. Look at verse 6 of chapter 44. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. There is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. At the heart of this section, of these three verses, are three statements that zero in on the point that Isaiah is trying to make. And the first statement is in, is in verse 6. It's the statement, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He precedes everything. And he concludes everything. From start to finish, all of history belongs to him. Nothing that has occurred in the past like the exile and nothing that will occur in the future like the return from the exile is outside of his control. He is in control of everything. Everything happens according to his sovereign plan. That's what that statement is saying. And this is what it means to be God, right? No other being, no man, no idol can claim that kind of power which is why he states emphatically, besides me, there is no God. No other God can compete with him. In fact, there's there's no competition, right? It's it's not even fair to call it a competition. It's not just that he's the greatest of gods. It's not that he gets first place and all the other gods get second and third. In reality, compared to him, there is no God. There's no one like him. I mean, we we just sang it, didn't we? Holy, there is no one like you. And that leads us to a second statement in verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. This is a challenge. Can anyone do what I can do? But it's not just any old act that God is asking. He's not just challenging, well, you know, just show me something. This is very specific. The word declare there in verse 7. Let him declare it and set it before me. That word negad in in Hebrew is is a word that in the context and the flow of Isaiah is talking about foretelling future events. Can anyone else do that? If so, let's have it. Tell us what's going to happen. There's the test of, of your deity. There's the test if you're a God like me. Can you foretell the future? Can you say that something impossible is going to happen and then make it happen? We've seen this kind of challenge earlier in Isaiah. If you look back a couple of chapters in Isaiah 41, and starting in verse 21, the same challenge has, has, uh, has occurred. It says in verse 21 of, of chapter 41, Do you not know? Oh, oh I'm in chapter 40. It says, set, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell them what's going to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them or that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. 
tell us. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. And an abomination is he who chooses you. If God is really the first and the last, if he controls all of, of history and, and, and brings it to his determined ends, then he alone is the one who knows the future and can declare the future before it happens, right? God's utter uniqueness in this universe is demonstrated definitively in his ability to predict what seems impossible and then bring it to pass. Only God can do that. People have always been curious about knowing the future. This isn't just things that are relegated to uh, people who are you know, visiting fortune tellers or looking up their horoscopes in the, in the, the newspaper. This is, I think all of us have this underlying propensity to, to know what's going to happen, right? This is just... This is our curiosity, but it's also, it's just part of being human. We want to know what's going to happen. I read a news uh, report that came out recently discussing um, DNA research that's being done where they're, they're, um, they're trying to see whether or not they can look into the chemical processes that happen in our genes um, in order to give us an accurate picture of when we're going to die. Right, so you just look at the chemical processes, this, this uh, certain chemicals that are created during the during a life cycle of, of people, and, and and it's kind of like looking at the half life of something. You can just tell how long somebody has before their body can't work anymore, and they're going to. And so people are, are are thinking maybe someday in the future we can accurately predict when you're going to die. You, are you going to sign up for that service? <laughs> it's not quite the same thing as. It's what we uh, might hope it to be. We, you know, we can make those kind of predictions. And we, we maybe even can be fairly accurate with those predictions based on our knowledge of meteorology, biochemistry, physics. I mean, we, we can even come to some fairly accurate outcomes. But in the end, the factors missing is this. It's control, right? Someone can predict that something is going to happen, but if they can't control the outcome of the event, then they, they, they can't guarantee that it's going to happen. I mean, I suppose that you could say, well, somebody's going to die, and then you can kill them. That's, that would work. But barring that, you know, if a, if a meteorologist says it's going to rain tomorrow, meteorologist Pete, he can say that, and it might happen, but he has no idea, and he has no control over the weather, so he can't guarantee it, right? And then when you up the ante and you say, say okay, let's not just talk about something natural. Let's talk about something supernatural. Now, you, now you're... you're you're exiting the realm of anything that you have power over. There's only one being in the universe who can, can declare the future and then ensure that what is predicted is realized exactly as it f- was foretold, and that being is God. The Bible's filled with examples of this. In fact, this is such a defining characteristic of God that in the book of Kings... Every prediction that God makes through the mouth of his prophets in the book of Kings comes to pass before the book ends because the whole point is that only God, not the gods of the nations, not the gods of the Canaanites like Baal, they can't predict the future. Only God can. And so part of the message of the book of Kings is that everything he foretells happens. 
That's why in verse 8, if you look at verse 8 in, in chapter 44, he says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. You've seen me do this, Israel. This should bring you comfort and hope because I have a track record for this. And that brings us to a third statement in verse 8. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This pretty much sums up the whole point of everything we've been discussing. Is, Is there a God besides him? Of course not. Of course not. And he answers that question in a very specific way. There is no rock. That that word rock is not talking about a boulder. It's not talking about a stone. It's talking about a craggy cliff face. It's talking about the kind of cliff that one could could hide themselves in to protect themselves from an enemy, from, from the weather, from disaster. And that word is used five times in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32 to describe the God of the Exodus. He is the rock. That is to say, the same God who sheltered and protected Israel during their first exodus out of Egypt is the God who will protect them and shelter them when they depart on their second exodus out of Babylon. It's the same God. He's been doing this since the beginning. There's only one rock. In fact, there's even a hint of sarcasm here at the end of of verse 8. I know not one, which is kind of funny for God to say, right? If God's God, what, one of the things that he is is he's, he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? Can't be God and then be ignorant of something. So if God is saying, there is no rock, I am unaware of any other rock, that's a sarcastic way of saying, there is no one besides me. This is, by, way, by the way, um, a definitive um, response to the, uh, the pagan... Christian cults like Mormonism who would try to take the triune God and make them into polytheists, that they're three different gods. Because if they're three different gods, then they're all omniscient, they know everything. And yet here we have God, the God of the Bible, saying, I know not of another God. I know no one like me. So either the Trinity is, uh, is not all of the same essence or um, they need to read their Bibles carefully. What does all this mean for you and me? It means that God is unlike anything else in this world that you can put your trust in. Nothing else is like him. You want to put your trust in the security of money? How's that going to do for you during the next big recession? Huh? Or you, I mean, you may say, well, that's why I diversify. <laughs> well, you know, that's not, diversification's great, but it's not going to help you when uh, there's a massive data breach at your, uh, at your bank and then all your information is out there, you know, for hackers to get a hold of on the dark web, right? Nothing is secure. Nothing is secure. What is it that you put your trust in? What is it that competes in your heart with the God that's described in these three verses? Ask yourself the same question God's asking. Who is like him? Is there a God besides him? Can they offer you the security and the protection and the hope that he can? Can your spouse, can your job, 
Can your ingenuity or your influence compete with the God who makes promises and ensures that he keeps them? Can they do that? When will we stop and realize that everything around us that we hang our trust and our hopes on is like this thin rope and we think it's going to hold us, it's going to snap. It's going to snap. It seems like it's going to hold us, but it can't. And that's what the next section of our chapter reveals. Why is God the only one worthy of our hope? It's because he's unlike anything else we can put our trust in. And it's because every, anything else we place our trust in cannot give us what we need. It cannot offer us, in the end, what we need. Look at verse 9. This section, by the way, is one of the most powerful and dramatic refutations of idolatry in the whole Bible. It's sarcastic. It's, it's mocking. I love it. It's incredibly effective because it uncovers and it exposes the, the heart of what's really going on in idolatry and, and man-made religion. And it begins in verse 9 with this opening statement. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now, the key idea in this whole opening statement is found in verse 10. Look at it again. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Who does something like that? That is masterful rhetoric. There's only one answer that you can give that doesn't make you sound like an idiot, right? No one would do that. No one would fashion a god that won't help them, that that offers you no help. But it's a trap. It's a trap. And that's what makes it so masterful. There's certain people who are masters at argumentation and and debate, and they can just ask the right kind of questions that corner their opponents into making a statement that just that ends that that, that ends their uh, the debate. They, they can't deny it, and that's exactly what Isaiah is doing here. No one makes a god that can't do anything for them. That's absurd. <laughs> But that's exactly what happens in the enterprise of idolatry. That's exactly what happens. And it begins to uncover this enterprise in, in, beginning in verse 12. And he begins by describing the metal worker who crafts an idol made of iron. Verse 12, the iron smith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Now, the overall point of this is, is that, you know, this, this is a metal idol that's made by a man, right? He may be a strong man. He works strong. He's bending metal. Oh, tough man. He works diligently, but by the end of the process, he's, even though he's a skilled craftsman, he's only human. He becomes exhausted by the process. He's parched from his labor. This is an idol made by a man, right? 
And metal idols were usually property of someone more well-off. Commoners usually had idols that are made of wood. And so um, the rest of this, beginning in verse 13, focuses on the work of a carpenter who's, who's fashioning a wooden idol. So in verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with, the, uh, with planes and marks it with a compass. He, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Once again, this man is careful. He's diligent. He plans out his work. He chooses only the best of woods, cedar, cypress, oak. These are hard, durable, valuable building materials. In fact, it seems like he's been planning this out because he even talks about him planting a tree and, and, and letting the rain water it. So he's been doing this. He's, he's got a thing going. But the ugly truth is hidden in the diligence of the carpenter. It says he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Isaiah is putting his finger on the heart of idolatry, on the heart of it. John Oswald put it this way. What is the result? Humanity in its fullest flower, the kind of humanity that needs a house to live in, a roof over its head to keep the rain out and four walls to keep out marauders. All this effort solely to project ourselves on the heavens. Again, Isaiah demonstrates how incisively he understands the nature of paganism. Above all else is an attempt to cast eternal reality into the shape of humanity, unquote. This is the essence of idolatry in, in all its forms. Mankind desperately wants a God. He needs a God as long as it's not the true God. Just like Adam and Eve thought they could be like God, so man tries to fashion a God in the image of himself. This is what the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans 1, right? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Man once something he can see, something he can touch, something he can understand. But more than anything, he wants something that's just like him. And then ultimately, idolatry is about self. The idol serves the person, not the, not the other way around. It may feel like you're serving the other thing, but really you're serving the other thing so you can get what it can give you. The needs of the person exist don't exist for the idol. The idol exists for the person. John Calvin put it this way. Quote, the, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, nay, even sunk in the grossest of ignorance. 
It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God, unquote. The doctrine of humanism, which we think of as a new concept that comes out of the Enlightenment, it's nothing more than ancient paganism redressed. We are the gods, and life is about us. And your life is about ordering all and everything around what's going to make you happy. This is the prevailing winds that are carrying our culture, the secular humanism. They purport to be unbiased, secular. We're not partisan. And yet, they are just as much engrossed in pagan religion as the Canaanites were and the Babylonians. We see this fact in, in our passage. Isaiah continues in, uh, in verse 14. Look at verse 14. We read it. Um, just get, it, get us into the flow of the next part. He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak, lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Verse 15, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire, bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it into an idol and falls down before it. Verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the the half he, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he's warmed himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it and prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. Isaiah is really really upping the sarcasm here. You can't help but see the lunacy, see the irony of idolatry here. The same tree the man uses to make his God, he also uses to warm himself, bake his bread, and roast his dinner. The whole point is is simple. What's, What's the difference between the wood used to make the idol and the wood used for everything else? Nothing. There's no difference. It's the same tree. And yet the man burns half of it, bakes his bread, roasts his meat, and then turns the other half of it, bows down, and says to it, deliver me, for you are my God. But it's not a God. It's a block of wood because it used to be a tree, right? What can it do? What profit can it bring to the man? In fact, here's the irony. Here's the real irony is that the wood brought more profit to him as fuel for a fire than it does material for an idol. So let's go back to that question that's asked in verse 10. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? And the answer is, surprising, everyone who practices idolatry. Why would somebody do this? That's the real question of the day. And the answer comes in verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern. For he shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and, I sh- and shall I make the rest into an abomination? Shall I f- fall down before a block of wood? 
They don't even ask that question. He feeds, verse 20, on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Verse 20 is especially interesting. Feeds is the word that is used of animals grazing, grazing in pastures, but he's not feeding on good food. He's feeding on ashes. In other words, Isaiah is saying there's, there's no difference between the idol he's bowing down to for deliverance and the ashes left over from the fire that he used to burn the other half of the wood. He doesn't see that his spiritual food is nothing but ashes. Because of spiritual blindness, can't see. And when we, we look at idolatry through that lens, it makes us ask some important questions, doesn't it? Why would I find hope in a block of wood? Why would I invest so much trust in something that has no power, no more power than the human being who created it? But remember, idols are in the form of many shapes, not just wood. They're not just blocks of wood or shaped iron. They come in the shape of money and houses and spouses and kids and political leaders and movements and organizations. Or in the person who looks back at you in the mirror. You can make anything into an idol. And none of those things can offer you real hope. They offer empty promises. And in the end, trusting in these things is no different than trusting in a block of wood. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Let's say the Lord is opening up your eyes and you're becoming aware of idols that you have turned back to in your life. You're beginning to see your hopes and your desires and your needs that are invested in things that can't bring you real profit. What do we do? Isaiah gives us the answer in verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. For you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. First, we have to remember. We have to remember where we came from, who we used to be. Remember that you used to be an idolater. You used to chase after those things. But that God opened up your eyes. You used to be that blind person that couldn't see a block of wood, a lie in your right hand, but then God opened up your eyes so you could see it. Remember that. Remember who you used to be. Remember that you had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And remember who you belong to. Remember that you're not your own, that you were bought with a price, the precious price of the blood of Jesus Christ. He bought you. He bought you out of the slave market of sin. He bought you out of that slavery that you used to be in so that he owns you now. You're his servant. You don't serve these things anymore. You don't belong to them. They don't belong to you. You belong to God. You belong to Christ. You're his servant. And also remember that there is forgiveness found in Christ. 
there's forgiveness. On the cross, he dealt with your sins once and for all. He blotted out your transgressions, it says. Look at verse 22. He blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. They're no more than a a, a wispy cloud and, and mist that gets driven off as the sun comes up. Remember. Look back and remember. But then also repent. Return to me, he says. Turn back. Turn your back on the idols that you had once turned your back on and turn to him again, to the one who can give you real hope. Isaiah 44 closes with one of the most incredible promises in in verses 24 through 28. It's, It's where everything in this whole section of chapter 40 through 48 is going. It's this promise that God is going to return his people from exile, rebuild Jerusalem, and and rebuild the temple, and that he's going to do it all through a man named Cyrus. Cyrus. God is, is doing what only he can do. He's foretelling the future, and he is telling them in such a way that when it happens, there is no way they can come to any other conclusion, this was God, because he told us it was going to happen, and it happened just the way it did, and that's exactly what happens. 150 years after the death of Isaiah, after he makes this proclamation, Cyrus the Persian defeats Babylon and makes the proclamation that Judah can return. It's one of the greatest prophetic predictions in the Bible. God named the very person by name so that they would know that he is God and he had told them beforehand. So there's no doubt about it. As great as that miracle is, though, it could never eclipse the fact that in Jesus Christ, God became a man and died for your sin. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that is described five times in the book of Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That's the same phrase that we have in our text. Five times in the book of Revelation that's ascribed to Christ. The same God who controlled Israel's history, who formed them and guided them and chastened them in exile and then returned them to their land. It's the same God who came and died for our sins, rose from the dead, and is coming to judge the earth and make all things right. He's the one whom Peter made his confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he made that confession in a town called Caesarea Philippi, which was the cesspool of all of the filthy idolatry of that region. All the idols in that town, they were surrounded by, and Peter can make the statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, as opposed to all these dead idols. He's the one that Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you are not a, a Christian this morning, um, and you're maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you have um, been here before and... and and are settling in, um, 
I beg of you to think very carefully about all these things. Everything you're holding on to, everything that you're clinging to for comfort or for strength, for hope, it cannot hold the weight. It cannot hold it. it that rope will snap. Okay? But, but Christ is, is graciously extending his hand down. All you need to do is take it. And he can hold you. And his grip will hold. And he will not let go. You can place all of your hope on him because he can do something that no idol, nothing else in your life can do, and that is he can deal with your sin. He can wipe it away. And he did that on the cross. He paid the entirety of that penalty for your sin through that death and then put it to death when he raised from the dead. He can offer you that forgiveness. And all you have to do is you put your trust in him, your full trust. You throw yourself on the mercy of, uh, of Christ and Christ promises you that you will receive it. There's nothing you can do except to, to place your full trust in him. Hide yourself in Christ. He is that rock.